right, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Working our way through the first 14 verses. You know, we live in a world where identity crisis is rampant. If you watch the news or you follow anything that's going on, if you are not living under a rock, you know that. And the world is getting crazier all the time as people seek to find their identity. I'm sure you've heard all the talk about people's preferred pronouns and all of that. I saw a video the other day of someone who identifies as a demon, and their demon pronouns are demon, deem, and demon self. And uh, it just boggles the mind. But that's the world that we live in today. It has become very popular for people to make much of how they identify in their sexuality. And so this is nothing new. We know this. But the reality is this has always kind of been a thing, and, and all of us do this to one degree or another. We all seek to find identity in something. Oftentimes we, I, we find our identity in our career. If you ask somebody about themselves, usually the first thing they're going to tell you is what they do for a living. People find identity in education, in fitness, in their children. You see marriages that fall apart when the kids grow up and move out because the children were the center of everything and the, you know, the spouses don't even know each other anymore by the time the children move out. People find identity in relationships and ministry. Ministry can be an idol, something that ministers have to watch out for. People find identity in hobbies. People find all kinds of identity in past successes, right? The good old days, the glory days, high school football days, right? You always hear people, they are stuck in the past. That's their identity. Some people insist that their identity is in their poor choices, their struggles, past regrets. They just cannot let go of it. They are bound by it. Uh, they, they identify, they find who they truly are in their own thinking by the mistakes that they've made in the past. It's a tragic thing. People identify with particular political parties, movements, groups, conservative, liberal, libertarian, BLM, Proud Boys, Antifa, militias, climate change, pro-life, pro-choice, on and on and on it goes. There are so many causes, so many things uh, for people to, uh, to find to fill a void, to believe in, to rally behind. You know, people look for purpose, meaning, and value, and direction for their lives and the things that they identify with. Does that make sense? That's what, that's what people are, are doing ultimately. And I think, in part, it's because we're, we're wired that way. We're wired that way. We are wired to worship, I would say. We are wired to worship. We're going to worship something. And the Bible says that we're supposed to find our greatest purpose and our true identity in being worshipers of the living God. Amen? Remember the first time I heard a pastor say that? He said, my identity is a worshiper of God. And I thought, that's amazing. I really liked that. That really clicked for me. Because we can find identity in so many things. It takes us over. It changes us. And the reality is that uh, because of the fall, because of sin, we've gone haywire. We've been rewired. And now we worship anything but God. We create a God of our own imagining, and we determine what acceptable worship looks like. 
we create a God that looks an awfully lot like us, like me. And then we determine what pleases that God, and it's really just what pleases me, right? Does that make sense? We frequently look for purpose, meaning, worth, identity, and everything but God. Always searching, never finding. Always searching, never finding. Perhaps this describes the woman that we're going to encounter today in our text. Today we are studying the commonly known text, The Woman at the Well. If you've been reading your Bible for any length of time or have been in the Christian community for any length of time, you probably already know this story or have at least heard of The Woman at the Well. Well, Jesus engages this woman who by society standards and the cultural norms, she would have been a despised person, outcast. But Jesus gets right to the heart of her greatest issue and deepest need. Jesus uses water and human thirst to illustrate a spiritual point. Jesus says to her, you are thirsty and only the water that I can give truly satisfies. Perhaps this woman has been looking in all the wrong places to find fulfillment, to find identity. And by this point, no doubt, her identity has been truly mangled. Guzik, David Guzik says, It's common for people to try and satisfy their God-created inner thirst through many things, or through anything except for what Jesus gives. People are thirsty. They want. They long. They search. They reach. But only what Jesus gives satisfies to the deepest level of man's soul and spirit. Amen. So to the Christians in this room, to the believers, as I say these things, we're probably already feeling conviction. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're guilty of this. Even as someone who has trusted Christ and been born again, we still fight with this desire to find satisfaction, fulfillment, and many other things. And so you're probably already thinking of a particular area where you struggle in this regard. I know I do, for sure. If you don't know the Lord, if you have not committed your life to Jesus in this room today, I pray that you come to the realization that this is you, and that all of your attempts to find true fulfillment, meaning, purpose, satisfaction, peace, rest, it's futile. There's nothing in this world that can truly satisfy. This world really has nothing for us. It really is found only in the hope of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and drinking the living water that He has to give. Amen? So with that, my question is, what well are you drinking from? What well are you drinking from? That's the title of this message. How about a subtitle? Don't stay thirsty, my friends. You may get that reference, you may not. If not, that's okay. All right. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I desire to minister to your people. I desire to feed the sheep here. Holy Spirit, would you please quicken me? Would you anoint me? Would you give me strength of mind and speech, clarity of thought, conviction, passion, love? And would you move mightily in here today as your word goes forth? Would you move in the hearts and the minds and the lives of your people? Would you bring great conviction and encouragement and comfort? And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in this text, I would say we really have two points. It's a a very basic outline. And that is the, the goal of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. 
or the gift of Jesus. So, point number one, the goal of Jesus is to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. That's what he came to do. So, would you look at uh, verses one through four with me? It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So at this point, we're told that the Pharisees recognize that Jesus has become more prominent even than John the Baptist and his disciples. So, knowing that there's a potential uh, firestorm brewing here between John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees, Team Jesus decides to get out of Dodge because they're now more prominent than Team John the Baptist. And so, uh, we're told that they decide to get out of uh, Judea and to make their way back up to Galilee, which is where Jesus and his disciples spent the majority of their ministry up north in Galilee. And so we're told that Jesus needed to pass through Samaria to get there. So as you'll recall, at this point in history, we'll look at a map here in a little bit, but at this point, Israel is basically three regions. The northernmost part of, uh, excuse me, the northernmost part of Israel is Galilee, and right in the middle, central, kind of central Israel would be Samaria, and then in the southernmost part, that would be Judea. So that's where they are currently, but they're going to make their way all the way up to the northernmost part of Israel, up into Galilee, and so they need to pass through Samaria. What we have here is a divine appointment. We have a, a divine appointment. We're getting ready to see something here that didn't happen by accident, and it does not happen, um, you know, it's not just some um, coincidental happening. This is very strategic on the part of our Lord because there's somebody that he needs to meet with. And so when it says that he needed to pass through Samaria, that's very significant. Needed. He needed to pass through there. Now, typically, the, the strict Jews would circumvent Samaria. They would not pass through Samaria if they could help it. They would go around Samaria if they needed to go north or south. And that's because there's a real history of prejudice that has taken place here. And so, just a little bit of history in regards to all of this. I've already talked about this a little bit, and so this is going to be a little bit of review. But I think it's helpful for us. I've got to set the scene here. I've got to help us understand what's really going on culturally, what's really going on uh, in the text, so that we can grasp the significance of this encounter that Jesus is about to have. So just bear with me here, all right? Now, initially, Israel was one united kingdom. It was made up of 12 tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, and they were united as one kingdom. But eventually, there was a civil war and the kingdom split. And so you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Does anybody know how many tribes were in the north? That's right, 10. How many in the south? Very good. All right, you got it. So 10 to the north, 2 to the south. And so the north was typically called Israel, and then the south would be Judah. And so um, there was the split, and King Omri in the north was the one who actually founded the city of Samaria. 
That's in 1 Kings 16. So that's where we first start to hear about Samaria. And uh, hence, you know, Jesus needing to go through Samaria. Now, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians, they were a ruthless, ruthless people. The kind of things that these people would do, torture and, and uh, warfare, psychological tactics, it's brutal. And they came in and they took the ten tribes out. They defeated Israel and they took the people out of the northern kingdom. That, this would be modern-day Iraq, the Assyrians at that time. So they dispossessed the ten tribes to the north. And then they moved in a bunch of other foreign people from various places to, to repopulate the northern area there. So there were some who were left behind from Israel. And then there were all of these new people moved in from other places. And they intermarried. And that is where the, the Samaritans came from. So they were a mixed people group. And so they were Jews and then all of these other ethnicities that came together. That is the origin of the Samaritan people. Well, eventually, the southern kingdom would be sacked by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And they would be taken out of the land for 70 years. And that is uh, what happens in the book of Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, all of that. That's the 70-year Jewish captivity uh, that, that happens there. Well, um, eventually, those Jews from the south that were taken out by the Babylonians, they were allowed to come back. They were allowed to come back and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall and to repopulate the land, and they did that. Now, when these Jews from the south came back, they had a very deep distrust for the Samaritan people, a very deep distrust and disdain for them, honestly. They didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans already. A lot of the people that had been uh, taken off into Babylonian captivity, they got over to Babylon, and they just kind of became one with the Babylonian culture. They compromised, and, and they, were, they were good with that. They didn't want to come back to Israel, and they didn't. But there were a bunch of people who it actually forged their identity. They banded together in adversity and in great duress. It really solidified who they were as a people. So when they came back to the land... They were serious about who they were as God's people and the cultures of the people. And they didn't want to mess around with the Samaritans because they saw the Samaritans as compromisers. Does that make sense? So already that's kind of happening. Well, in Ezra chapter 4, we're told that the Samaritans actually offered to help the Israelites rebuild. They came back to the land and they wanted to partner with them in rebuilding the temple. And uh, you remember what they said? They said, no, we're not going to do that. So the Samaritans were actually infuriated by that. And so we're told at that point <clears throat> they started working to try to frustrate the rebuilding of the plan. So there's just this, there's this antagonism that's already happening between the, the Jews, the Israelites, and the, the Samaritan people. So the Samaritans, they chose their own place to worship. They did not uh, acknowledge that Jerusalem was was the place uh, where God was to be worshipped, where the temple would be. And so they adopted Mount Gerizim as their, their place of worship, as their holy site, if you will. That goes back to Deuteronomy 27. And so they said that's where they're going to worship. Well, <clears throat> in 400 B.C., they built a temple there at Mount Gerizim. And MacArthur said that the Jews actually later destroyed that temple uh, in the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. So as you can imagine, that only made things worse. 
that just served to make the, uh, the animosity uh, much more severe. So as we get into the Gospels, we can see that this animosity is going strong in Jesus' day. As Jesus is passing through Samaria in Luke chapter 9, we're told that he had his face set steadfastly towards Jerusalem. That means he was making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He was going to worship there. And the Samaritans were offended by that because they didn't recognize Jerusalem as a sanctioned place to worship God. So we're told there in Luke 9 that uh, they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And this is the point where James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven to destroy the the Samaritans. That that would be that account. Well, conversely, in John chapter 8, as Jesus is kind of duking it out with, with the Jews there, they say to Jesus, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So that's like the worst thing you could say to that. I mean, that was, that was, you know, it's like talking about somebody's mama or something, right? You're a Samaritan. And even though Jesus was not, and we know that, obviously, that was the worst thing they could come up with. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. It's like, oh, you better watch out. <laughs> and so um, that, that's just kind of what we have going on here. So all this to say that there was a very deep historical, ethnic, and religious divide happening here at this time. It goes way back, and it's, it's, a, it's a very complex thing that's happening. And so I think this adds great significance to the fact that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. You know, there was only one thing that Jesus needed to do, and that was the Father's will. Jesus would regularly say that I came to do the will of him who sent me. I only do those things that are pleasing to the Father. Jesus did everything with divine intention. God sovereignly working through the Son to draw and to save. And so Jesus is on a mission here. We see the sovereignty of God in full effect as the Son of God in obedience to the Father is going into the very place that most Jews would not go because there was someone there that he wanted to reach. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. That's, that's our Savior. So I want you to understand that as we're looking at this text. This is all God here. This is the mercy of God, the grace of God. This is God drawing someone to himself who, by society standards, would have been totally rejected. But not so with Jesus. Jesus needed to go through there. Because Jesus came what? To seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. And so, verse 5, it says that he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well... And it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus has now come to Sychar. Um, This has been traditionally known as Shechem. There's all kinds of fascinating things that happened in Shechem in the Old Testament. One in which, you know the story where um, Joshua says to all the people, you got to choose this day whom you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That took place in Shechem. 
So just a very rich history. With that, let's go ahead and throw those maps up. Just a little recap. So this is, again, I apologize if that's kind of hard to see, but these would be all of the various tribes. Oh, what's going on here? I didn't just shoot somebody in the eye, did I? I had it backwards. I had to aim in that way. Okay. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So 12 tribes. And um, down here we have Judah and we have Simeon. And so this is what would be to the south when we have the, uh, the divided kingdom. And then you have the 10 tribes to the north up here, if that makes sense. And so right here, that's where Shechem is. So there's Mount, man, that's a bright light. I apologize. Um, this is where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are. This was the sacred place of worship for the Samaritans. So if we could uh, move to the next map. This is Jesus' time. And so uh, now you've got Galilee to the north. Central Israel will be Samaria right here. And then down here to the south, Judea. And here's that same place. Here's Samaria. Here's Sychar. So this is the same spot where those two mountains are, where Sychar, which was Shechem, uh, is. And this is where this scene is taking place. Does that make sense? Cool. All right. So Jesus came to a place that was very significant. To the Samaritans, this is a plot of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. It's really fascinating. This, this location has been firmly set by Christians, Muslims, Samaritans, Jews. To this day, they're pretty sure they know where it is, and it's supposedly um, in a crypt. It's like a, an underground burial site underneath an Orthodox church that was un, not finished. Uh, in Israel, but it's supposedly still active today, that, that spring. And so that's a pretty fascinating thing to consider. Well, here we're told Jesus comes to this very well, and he's exhausted from his travels, and he sits down by the well. And so the stage is set. The Son, in obedience to the Father, has gone into a place where most Jews would not traverse and he's here, and he's tired, and he is sitting here at the well, and he's ready for this woman to come. And so this is God's providence. God's providence is awesome. Maybe you know what, what providence is, maybe you don't, but it's really just a fancy way of saying how God orchestrates all things, how all things are so intricately woven together. God's timing, it's incredible. So often something happens, and we had this divine appointment, and we're like, that was God's doing. God orchestrated that. But then you don't even realize how many things had to line up just perfectly for that moment to actually happen. And so that is the providence of God. He's working all things together for good. Amen. That is the hope and the promise that we have for the Christian. And that is God's providence. And you know, that's amazing to me. God is working. That should be so encouraging to us. Whatever's going on in your life right now, God is working. God is orchestrating. God doesn't waste anything, and He's able to use everything, even the difficulties, to do a good work. And He will bring His goodwill to pass. So wherever you are in life right now, whatever you're going through, just know that God is working providentially, always working, always moving. And that's such an exciting thing to see. And, we, you know, we don't even get to, to see 
or really understand just how much is going on around, all around us that God is up to. But when we get a little glimpse of it, isn't it sweet? Doesn't it just encourage us? And that's what we see happening here right in front of us in this text. So, brings us to verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here it is. The scene is set. Jesus is here by the well. The Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and we're told it's the sixth hour. So this is 12 noon. 12 noon, most likely. And so this is significant because... Typically, when people would come to the well to get water, it would be women, and it would be groups of women, and they would come either early in the day or they would come late in the day to avoid the severe midday heat. But this lady comes by herself, and she comes in the heat of the day. That's very significant. That tells us that this lady is most likely ostracized by her community. So if you don't know this story, I don't want to get ahead of myself We'll talk about these things next week. But Jesus puts his finger on something in her life. And he, uh, he identifies the fact that she's been married five times. And the guy that she's currently living with is not her husband at all. And so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But I don't want to assume everybody in here knows that. But that's kind of the crux of what's going on here. Evidently. These patterns that this lady has fallen into uh, has devastated her life socially. She's outcast. She's coming here by herself, ostracized in the heat of the day uh, because she's probably not very welcomed amongst the women of her own community. But you know what? Jesus does not ostracize her. Jesus does not ostracize her. Um, you know what he does? He, he requests a drink of water from her. I think that's amazing to me. What I love about this, it's the approachability of Jesus. See, the weak, the lowly, the hurting, the lost, the suffering, they could come to Jesus and Jesus would receive them. Amen? I think about Luke 7. Man, what an incredible text. It's Simon the Pharisee. He invites Jesus into his house. And you may know the story, there was a lady who came in, and she stood behind Jesus, and she kneeled down, and she began to, to wash his feet with her tears and with her hair. Now, the, the Pharisee sitting at the table says, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know what manner of lady this is. He would not let her touch his feet like that. Well, Jesus, perceiving what Simon is thinking, he speaks to the heart of that issue, and he says, you know... Simon, from the time I've come into your house, you've shown me no hospitality. You did not greet me with a kiss. You gave me no water for my feet, no, no uh, oil to anoint my head. But this lady has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears and her own hair. And he says it's because she's been forgiven much. The one who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus was drawn to because they were thirsty. Because they knew that they needed him and he knew that he had exactly what they 
needed. And such is the case here. These are the kinds of people that Jesus so often came to. And, and she knew, no doubt, the lady there in Simon's house, the kind of treatment and reception she would get going into a Pharisee's house. But such was her desperation that she was willing to do that because she also knew what kind of reception she would receive from Jesus. That he would love her, embrace her, forgive her. And that to me is incredible. That is, that is the glory of our Savior, the glory of our Lord Jesus, his approachability. Well, the woman here at the well, <clears throat> the woman here at the well was amazed that a Jewish man would even talk to her. This was totally out of the social norm for uh, a Jewish man to speak to just a woman in public. Uh, some of the commentary I read said that tradition has it. Men would not even talk to their own wives and, and sisters in public, rabbis, because it was such a strict, uh, you know, such a, a strict tradition in those days. I even read one commentator who said that there were uh, the Pharisees who were known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they would close their eyes if they saw a woman coming and they would walk into a wall or fall over into the street or something. And I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, according to this particular commentary, that, that was, and that's just ridiculous to even think, right? And so not only was that unusual that a Jewish man would speak to a woman, but for a Jewish man to request a drink from a Samaritan vessel, now that would just be shocking. That, that, that just would not happen. So her surprise is understandable. It's legitimate. But you know what? Jesus was not bound by cultural prohibitions. He just didn't get caught up in that. that. The Pharisees were always trying to come after him because he didn't follow all their little rules. But Jesus was not bound by that. There was nothing that was going to stop him from going into this place, engaging this woman, and loving her in the name of the Father. Nothing was going to stop that. Not some silly, stupid, cultural, traditional hypocrisy. right? He was not, a, he was not bound by that. He's not bound by that. So Jesus sought after the lowly, the despised, the outcast, the thirsty. Does that describe us? Even as a Christian, I want you to hear me. Oftentimes, I know we struggle in many ways, and we get discouraged, and we get down about that, understandably so. But you know, I, I think that even still, that's the kind of person that Jesus is drawn to. He's the good shepherd. And he comes to care for his people, no matter how badly they're struggling, especially if they're struggling in, in sin and, and hurting and weakness and doubt and failure. We tend to think that God's mad at us or he doesn't want to have anything to do with us. He's displeased with us because we're struggling. But that's not what I see with Jesus in the New Testament. He, he, he's drawn to the hurting heart, to the one who struggles, to the one who even... Who even doubts, right? But on the other side, the proud person, the self-sufficient person, the self-righteous person, Jesus has no time for that person. Jesus has no time for that person. And so I think even as a Christian, do we find ourselves being very boastful or proud about, you know, the level of, you know, supposed righteousness that we've attained to? Uh, do we think that we're just so righteous and so good and there's just a clear division between me and everybody else, us and them? 
Um, if that is you, then I would encourage you, examine yourself and repent, because that is all bad. That is all bad. There's, that, that cannot be. As a follower of Jesus, that is not our Lord, and that is not His followers. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, if you're struggling in here, be encouraged, because Jesus seeks the person who is struggling and hurting, and He's approachable, and He loves those people. He loves you. He loves us. Amen? Well, this brings us to the second part of our text now, and that is the gift of Jesus. So first we saw the goal of Jesus, to seek and to save the lost, and he moved with divine intention under God's providence, strategically, intentionally seeking people out. And this brings us to the second part, the gift of Jesus. And what is that gift? It's the living water. The living water. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says to this lady, If you knew who you were talking to and what he had to offer you. The gift of God. He says, if you knew the gift of God, what is this gift exactly? I think it could be one thing. It could be many things. I would say in the most basic sense, this word gift, it's grace. That's the idea. The grace of God is a gift. God's favor. If you even understood the kind of favor that God is showing you right now, I would say that the gift is Jesus himself. The gift is the Holy Spirit, as we will see here in a moment. I believe the gift is the, the very revelation that Jesus is imparting to this lady as they speak. And I would say, ultimately, the gift is salvation itself. So this is, this is amazing. This is massive. If she only knew. But she has no idea what's actually going on here. The fact that Jesus is even here with her is a gift from the Father's hand. Because this was the Father's will. She is totally oblivious to the reality and depth of her own need. She doesn't even know this right now. She doesn't understand these things. You think she's pondering these things there at the well? She's totally oblivious to, to the very thing that the Savior has come to bring to her attention, to draw out of her. There's a proverb that talks about that. Uh, I don't want to butcher it, but having the ability to, to draw things out of a person as, as from a well and that's what we see happening here with Jesus. As she's being drawn to the Father, drawn to the Son, and He's drawing these things out of her, and He's bringing this revelation to her. It's, it's amazing. This is the grace of God and nothing less. Because we were all in this boat, spiritually blind. Spiritually blind and dead. Dead in trespass and sin. Blind, deaf. But then God. But God. He graciously intervenes in our lives and He reveals Himself to us by His Holy Spirit. And He reveals to us our, our own sin and our deep and abiding need for Him and the glories of the gospel message. Amen? All of that is revealed to us. And Jesus starts here as the one with thirst. And she has the resource, right? But then Jesus turns it around. In reality, she is the thirsty one, and Jesus has that which truly satisfies. Jesus has the living water. 
And this would be a very familiar Old Testament concept, this idea of living water. Maybe you know the verse Jeremiah 2.13. It says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So two things. One, they have abandoned me. They have abandoned their God, the one who truly gives life, the fountain of living water. And they have gone to other gods who aren't gods at all. They have dug for themselves wells that are cracked that can hold no water, that can give no life. See, that's been a perpetual reality for God's people all along. Seeking after what cannot sustain. Going to all the wrong places for that which cannot sustain. When God was there all along faithfully extending Himself, inviting people to come and to drink, to receive life, sustenance, nourishment from Him, the author of life. And see, that's what we're talking about here. That's what water does. Water sustains. It gives life. And we know this. You know, you've probably heard that you can only go about three days without water. Uh, before you will die of dehydration. I, I started thinking about that. I thought, is that really true? Because three days is not a long time. It's not that long. And so I looked into it, and that is true. It, three days, it can happen, but definitely by day five, that's it. So you got three to five days without water, and you're dead. That's, that's amazing to me. And so we understand the necessity of water. I mean, we just consider the drought that we've been in and how how severe it has been. And I look around at various places, and the grass is just dead and, and, and brown. And then all of a sudden, the rain comes. A few days of, of steady rain, and it just, just like that, it bounces back. It's just as green as can be. And that's amazing to me. And see, that's, that's speaking on a physical plane. But Jesus gives living water that brings eternal life and sustains and satisfies the human soul. This is on a much deeper level. And this is a much deeper and greater need. And the woman clearly does not understand it at this point. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as well as his sons and his livestock. So she said, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Some estimates, the well was probably about 100 feet deep, maybe even deeper at, the, at this point. And so she says, look, you can't get water from this well. You don't have a bucket. Uh, do you have a, a greater water source even than this? Are you saying that you're greater than Jacob who gave us this well, which is an irony of ironies because Jacob was not great. I mean, we know anything about Jacob, the Bible is clear. His name literally means scoundrel, basically, heel catcher. You know, he, he's trying to pull you down so he can get ahead. And she's like, are you greater than Jacob? Well, it's an obvious yes, he is greater than Jacob. But she doesn't understand this. So verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. A 
kind of distracted by the fact that I am drinking water like crazy right now as I'm teaching this. I don't know if that's like stood out to you guys at all, but I'm just very, very uh, dehydrated at the moment, so <clears throat> I apologize. All right, so uh, human thirst for actual water will never be fully and finally quenched. We can drink water, as you see. But then within just a moment, I have to have another drink. We have, it's, as long as we're alive, that's the way that it is. We have to continually drink water. That thirst is never fully and finally quenched. You know, our greatest longings in life, when fulfilled, will never finally satisfy. We really agonize over things in this world that we desire to have. And then should we get those desires, they don't fully satisfy. Maybe for a moment... Maybe for a moment, and then what happens? It gets old. It gets old, and it's on to the next thing. Sometimes we come from a particular place, we get to the place that we want to be, and now all of a sudden we start thinking it was better back there. That's the human condition. That's the human nature, right? We've all experienced this. So there's something in us that's just never going to be satisfied this side of life. We're not meant to be totally and fully satisfied until we have God. There's a God-shaped hole in our lives, if you will. Forgive me, that's kind of a cliche thing, but can you understand what I'm saying? You know, some things are satisfying in the beginning, uh, but they will turn and destroy you in the end. Many of us know that well. You know, it's all fun and games at first. You start messing around with stuff. You start looking for certain things to, to mask pain to forget about the past, you're partying, it's, it's all fun and games at first, and then you become a slave to those things. And so the Bible talks of sin as though it, it is pleasurable for a season, sure. The pleasures of sin are passing. They are pleasurable for a season, but even those things will turn on you in the end. So nothing really satisfies in this life. But the water that Jesus gives brings complete satisfaction for the soul. What exactly is this? What water is this? Well, I think John chapter 7 gives us a clue here. John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those who believe would receive. This is a fascinating text, which I'm tempted to delve into, but I won't because we will be there shortly. But Jesus says that if you come and you drink, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, and that he says he identifies that as the Holy Spirit. He identifies that as the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But you know, let me just kind of acknowledge the obvious thing here. This does not mean that we're not going to still have desires in this life. Maybe you've been kind of wondering about that. That's something I kind of wrestled through with this text. Because if we're honest with ourselves, even when we come and we drink, we drink the living water and we are filled to overflowing, do we not still have longings in this life? Do we not still have desires? That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. We can desire things in this life. There are good and godly desires that we may still 
pursue. I think God puts that in us. So this is not going to say, now that you come to Jesus, you just don't desire anything else. That would be weird, and that would be a strange way to live. If we had no goals, no dreams, no pursuits, no desires, no inward longings. So that's not what this is saying here. You know, we may have many unfulfilled desires that are just, it crushes the soul because there are things that we so long for. They're not bad things, they're good things, but they're out of our reach. And we may agonize over things, and that's okay. That's okay. That's not a sinful thing. You know, but even in the midst of that, having the ability to be filled and to even be overflowing with joy and peace and satisfaction in the Savior. You know, when you have nothing but Jesus, you find out He's enough. If you have nothing but Jesus, you find out He's enough. The problem is, is when we start, things start getting added to our lives and Jesus starts to get clouded out. And you get distracted, and life becomes about all these other things, and that is always the struggle before us, always the struggle. Jesus is enough. And so what is this water? What does this mean? You know, what does it mean to come and to drink and to have this just living water flowing from, from your heart? To drink the water that Jesus has to offer is to believe the truth of the gospel. To drink the water that Jesus has to offer is to believe that He is who He says He is. That He is the Son of God. That He came, He was born of a virgin, He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death in our stead as the substitution for our penalty. The, the penalty that was for us was placed on Him so that His righteous life would be given to us freely as a gift. And when that happens, we are regenerated. We have a regenerated heart. We believe the gospel. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We have new life in Him. We are born from above. We are brand new creations. We are redeemed from the bondage of sin. See, we were slaves to sin and death. But we've been purchased out. We've been bought back by the blood of our Savior through belief in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We are reconciled to God. We were enemies, and now we are friends. We were enemies, and now we are children. We've been restored back to God, and we are given peace with God. We are brought into right relationship with the one who created us. So now we are wired back the way that we were supposed to be, and now we are filling those greatest needs with the, the only one who can satisfy, and that is through God Himself, through Jesus Christ. We are in right relationship with our Creator, with our Maker. It's to walk in your true identity as a worshiper of God. That's who we are, folks. That's what defines us how we live our lives, the things that we make our ambition, why we do what we do, why we don't do the things that we don't do, all of that is tied into the fact that we are worshipers of the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to drink the living water. To go from being empty to being empty, just a vacuum, and taking to overflowing and abounding with generosity. Out of your heart will flow torrents 
of living water. You know, my life before Christ, survival mode. People were resources, right? That, that was basically the way you lived. And when I came to faith in Christ, all of that changed. Out of my heart would flow rivers of living water, and now I just wanted to serve and bless and give and help. My life had been about destroying, burning, bridges, taking, and now because I did drink of the living water, my desires altogether changed. My existence changed. My identity changed. And that's the idea, folks. So I ask you, what well are you drinking from? What well are you drinking from? Are you drinking from a cracked well that can't hold any water? Are you trying to satisfy in ways that cannot satisfy? Are you drinking the living water that only Jesus can give? Have you trusted Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you given your life to Him? Have you received the gift that only He can give that you desperately need? I hope that if you haven't, in this very moment, you will. Because I talked about God's providence, God's sovereignty. You're here providentially. God brought you here today. This is the gift of God. This is the grace of God that you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He's saying, come, drink, believe, receive, have life. Have rivers of living water burst forth from your inmost being. That's the gift, folks. Isn't he good? Haven't we tasted and seen that the Lord is worthy? That he is good and he is gracious? He's worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you. You've been good to us. You're always good. You remain good, holy, steadfast in love. We praise you. Thank you for the, the living water. Lord, thank you. We praise you. Help us, God, because we do struggle in this life. We have many desires and longings, and that's okay. But may you be the greatest longing of our soul. May we find all of our meaning, all of our purpose, all of our strength, all of our resources, all of our identity and who you are, Jesus. May we be worshipers of the living God. Pray for anybody in here today who's hurting, struggling, doubting, God, that you would fill them, you would open their hearts, that you would reveal yourself to them in a greater way. Pray that you would bring comfort and encouragement to your people. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, and God bless you all.